May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your generous provision for us. We thank you for this word from Psalm 139 that reminds us of the fact that you know all things, that you are everywhere present, and that you are all-powerful. And Father, we pray that this might be a comfort to your people, and it might be a reminder to those who know you not that they will answer to you. Father, we pray that you would draw sinners to yourself. Father, we pray that you uh, would guide your people, that your word would encourage us, that you would guide our thoughts, that we would be trusting in you every step of the way, for we know that you are with us. We pray, Father, that the gospel would go forward with power, that you would fill our hearts with joy, that you are with us. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed is risen from the grave. We thank you, Father, uh, for your mighty power that's, that raised him, and that your mighty power that saved us also by a great deliverance. We pray, Father, that Jesus would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Do you remember back many years ago, uh, there were these books uh, called Choose Your Own Adventure. I'm not sure if they're still present here today. When, when I was uh, a child, these books were quite popular. And what I recall is that whenever I opened the book and started choosing my own adventure, I always chose, it seemed like, the dead-end route. So I, if there were 100, 100, 150 pages in the book, I'd probably only end up reading 10 pages because every, every choice that I take took me to some kind of dead-end dead route that was no good. And at, at times, perhaps people might think that this is where their life is, that they choose these own adventures and that they go off the deep end and they're off in no man's land. But when you think about our lives, you and I must come to re the realization, even as David the psalmist here addresses in Psalm 139, that our lives are entirely in God's hands. There is nowhere that we can go that is, that is outside of his presence, and he has intimate knowledge of everything that we are. He has intimate knowledge of our being, and that he is with us in in every part of our lives. So in this Psalm 139, we see this very truth, that the all-knowing, everywhere present, and all-powerful God is a suitable judge of the wicked and purifier of his people. The all-knowing, everywhere present, and all-powerful God is a suitable judge of the wicked and purifier of his people. We'll look at this in four points. The first is that God is omniscient, meaning that God knows all things. Second, God is omnipresent. God is present everywhere. Third, God is omnipotent or omnipotent, meaning that God is all-powerful. And the fourth point, that you are accountable to this God. So the first point, God is omniscient, meaning that God knows all things. We have this in verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. 
I cannot attain it. Here we have in this first section that God knows all things. He is omniscient. That this is a welcoming thought. That God has perfect knowledge of us. Verse 1. Uh, o Lord, you have searched me and known me. That this is basically the theme, uh, the, the overarching theme of this psalm. Because he begins with it in verse 1. And then he closes with it toward the end in verse 23. When he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. So this idea of our God being a searching and a knowing God. That we have intimate knowledge uh, of this God, and he has, more importantly, in, intimate knowledge of us. You think about uh, the things that God knows about, verses 2 and 3. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. <clears throat> think about a typical worship service. Uh, how often we stand and sit in the going through the, the outline of the worship service. But what about our regular day? How, how often do we get up and how often do we sit down? That this is part of our everyday lives. How often it happens. It happens quite often. You think about God's instruction about sitting down and rising up. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. The Lord says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. God is saying that the instructions that we ought to give to our children should be happening all the time. That when we sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And that this is what ought to be happening Every time we sit down and rise up, we should be thinking great thoughts about our God. We should constantly be thinking and speaking about His greatness and His mercies to us. In the second half of verse 2, he says, You discern my thoughts from afar. So on one hand, God is, God is distant. God sees and knows our thoughts from afar. It's as if He's right there, which He is. And that from a distance, he knows us. Yet, verse 3 says that he also has this, this close and a detailed knowledge of us. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Think about lying down. That each day, we must lie down and go to sleep. And the process of sleep reminds us of our own frailty and weakness. All we have to do is be deprived of sleep or not good sleep for even one night, and we start to see the effects. One of the ways that people get tortured is that they're prevented from sleeping, that people try to wake them up every time they see them dozing off. And if you do this for a few days, then you start to hallucinate and have, uh, you start to see strange things. So that sleep reminds us that we are weak and that we're frail, that we must trust God, that we close our eyes, we fall asleep, that we trust God to protect and to preserve us. Here, God is acquainted with all of our ways. God knows your habits, your temptations, your attitudes. 
He knows the areas in which you're prone to weakness, in which you're prone to failure. He knows all of these things intimately. In verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So here, regarding our speech and our thoughts, God is one who can finish our sentences for us. In fact, God is one who can start and end our sentences for us. That before a word is on our tongue, he already sees it coming. This is the, the glory about the matter of prayer. That before we even ask God for something, before we pray about a matter, it's as if he's already prepared the answers for those prayers. This verse, this passage, is a biblical refutation of the view of open theism, uh, promoted by such men as Clark Pinnock, that God can't know everything that we could possibly choose because our freedom is left open. And here, this is this scripture about before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. It indicates that God does not merely know some or even most of what will happen in your life. That he knows all of it. And he knows all of it perfectly. He knows every detail about your life. Here, we continue in verse 5. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. This is a reminder to us about God's closeness to us. If you think about a group, whether it be a hike or a caravan, that um, if you've ever gone hiking in the wilderness, in the woods, that uh, the concern are those uh, for, for those who run too far ahead, especially for little ones. If they run too far ahead, or if they're stragglers in behind, that they get lost. And when you think about uh, predators, either four-legged predators like a wolf or a bear, or two-legged predators, the concern is that they tend to pick off these lone rangers. So especially little children, you want them close. And here, when we have described that God is one who hems me in behind and before, it means that there's no stragglers from God. That no one is so far out of the way that they're outside of God's protection and control that we ought to know that uh, nothing bad happens to God's sheep outside of his will, and that God uses those things even for good. In the latter part of verse 5, he says, And lay your hand upon me. That this describes, and, and we know that God doesn't have a hand, that God is a spirit, and he doesn't have a body like you or me, but that the idea of touching us, and laying a hand on us. It's description about the proximity, the intimacy that God has with us. That he's very personal and he is familiar with us. Here, this knowledge of God, that God knowing all things, all things about you, this is a reminder to us that God is one who sees past all of our facades. And that we, in our own 
finite view would like to think that Christ would die for us on our best day. So if I could put my, my best clothes on and present and put my best foot forward like at a job interview, that, that you know maybe Jesus would be willing to die for me on my best day. But you realize, here, in these verses, God is saying that he has intimate knowledge of us, and that God sent his son to die for sinners, for sinners on their worst day. Here also, this is an encouragement to those who face the worst of accusations coming from every which direction. And sometimes when those accusations fly, when the constant torments come your way, you just might lose sight of who you are. And these verses remind us that God is, God is one who knows the true you. Even when you start to lose track, even when you start to believe some of those false accusations about you, God still knows the true you. So this is the first point, that God is omniscient. He knows all things. The second point, God is omnipresent. God is present everywhere in verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Here, David the psalmist begins with two rhetorical questions in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? The rhetorical because he doesn't need to provide an answer. The answer is obvious. The answer is nowhere. That uh, there's nowhere that he can flee from, your, from God's spirit, from his presence. And he raises then instead a variety of places. He mentions, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, or the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Heaven and the grave, uh, the morning and the sea. Here, <clears throat> perhaps from a bit of, of um, the geography of Israel, <clears throat> the sun rises from the east. And uh, for Israel, looking to the east would be toward the mountains. Uh, looking to the west would be the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. So he's looking in either direction. And for heaven is up, and to Sheol, to the grave is down. And the psalmist David is saying that, saying that God is everywhere present. He can't go anywhere that's outside of God's presence. This is a comfort to people, especially during times of loneliness. As people age, you think about how, uh, as those who are getting older, you realize that the ones in your generation are fewer and fewer because they're dying off. Perhaps you've lost uh, a spouse. Uh, perhaps you've lost parents and loved ones. That this is a reminder that God is with the lonely. For those who are in serious trouble, those who are locked up in solitary places, 
that this is a reminder that God is with people even when they're isolated. I think back to a a tour that I took of Alcatraz, the former uh, federal penitentiary there on an island in the San Francisco Bay Area. I heard stories about uh, how inmates would occupy their time, those who were in solitary confinement. Uh, Solitary confinement, the room is completely dark. And this man, who was a prisoner, uh, they had a recording of him, described that he would tear a button off off of his garment. And then he would flip the garment up with his, uh, sorry, flip the button up with his thumb. And then he would get on all fours and look around for that button. And then when he'd find it, he'd take the button and he'd flip it up again and then get on all fours and then look for the button. And that's how he passed his time during the day because it was dark. He couldn't see and it allowed his day to pass. You think about how a Christian would respond. How do we occupy our time? That if we were stuck in this solitary confinement, there we are reminded that God is always with us. That we're not alone. That we need not feel lonely. That we have prayer and praise instead. That we can pray to our God. And that we can give thanks to Him and praise His holy name. We have also here in verse 10... The description again about God's hand. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. That the description here is that God is with us every step of the way. It's as if he's holding us by the hand and leading us along. That these scriptures remind us that God is there when you and I make the tough and the grave decisions of life. That you and I can lean on him. Because he upholds us by his righteous right hand. So this is the second point. God is omnipresent. God is present everywhere. The third point is God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. In verses 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So here, in verses 13, we're reminded that God's power is manifested in gestation. So the period between conception to birth that the psalmist David is describing it. He said that God formed his inward parts and knitted him together in his mother's womb. You think about the body as a system. There are many parts. 206 bones, 600 or so muscles, 78 organs. And you think about God's work of creation and God's work of, of creating life in the womb, that we don't know how this happens. It begins with a sperm and an egg, begins with seed, and all of these things are part of God's mighty work of creating and making. You think about the description that the Apostle Paul gives regarding a body. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 17 to 18. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And as we relate this to creating a, a child in the womb, that uh, God doesn't create just a hand, one big giant hand, that there's a person, that there's all these parts, and you have the various organs, and the fingers and the toes, and we're told that God oversees this entire process. We also understand that because of the fall, that there are birth defects, and that we cannot take for granted God's work. So here, we're reminded that God's power is manifested in creating life, creating a system, a system that's living, that God is the one who gives life, and God is also the one who takes life. This power of God, this almighty power, is also manifested in God's work of providence, there in verse 16. In verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Here, the description is uh, the work of an author, <clears throat> that all the days of your life are written in God's book before the first page was written, meaning that your life is already foreordained by God. Every day of your life is already planned by God. And this gives us assurance that you and I, we won't live a day longer, nor will we live a day shorter than what God has planned for you. All the pages in the book of your life are there. And some might raise, well, what about our choices of diet or exercise or occupation or uh, the taking in of toxins? You know, won't that have an effect on our life? Well, the answer is they will. But those choices are also foreordained. And we think about how this word can be an encouragement to us. Well, perhaps for some of you listening, you're in the twilight years of your lives. This psalm is a reminder to you to trust in God with your whole life, that he was with you from conception, even uh, to the prime of your life and to the very end when you take your last breath. This is a reminder that we ought to live all our lives trusting in him, and that we ought to be living our lives for his glory. We ought not to be so concerned when our lives will end, how long we'll live, what will happen in them. We're supposed to trust God. We were supposed to take one day at a time. Perhaps for some of you <clears throat> in your middle years, that you're stuck in between. That on one end, you're caring for aging parents who are getting weaker, perhaps who uh, are, are going through some major health crises. That this is a reminder. All the days planned for, for man are written in God's book. So as you care for aging parents, you can acknowledge that someday their lives will come to an end. So also you in the middle, perhaps thinking about the future of your children, the next generation in Christ's church, that we might be concerned about what kind of society, what kind of country, uh, what kind of world will they be living in? 
we realize that all of their days are planned of God. That the one who is in them is greater than the one who is in the world. And that we ought to be praying for the next generation, for our children, for the next generation of the church, that they would be more faithful than us, that they would be more holy than us, that they would be more bold in living out their faith than we are. So this is the, this is the third point. God is omnipotent, meaning that God is all-powerful. We have the fourth point. You are accountable to this God in verses 17 through 24. <clears throat> How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of bloodshed, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Here, verses 17 and 18 describe how God's thoughts are precious to us. That these things uh, that the psalmist reveals, that these thoughts, God revealing himself to us through his word, that these things should be precious to you, that God knows everything about you, that God is always present with you, and that God's power is manifested all around you and for you, that these things should be our delight to hear about, to read about his mighty acts. Think about what this might mean. Knowing these things, that God is, he knows all things, he's everywhere present, and he's all-powerful. The Christian is one who welcomes and delights in these attributes of God. This is our comfort. Yet for the non-Christian, these truths about God should cause them to live in angst. That since God is everywhere present, all-knowing and all-powerful, he knows all and he sees all. That there's no hiding in the darkness. The darkness allows us to hide from men. In fact, we can't even hide from men with new technologies of night vision goggles, uh, infrared, things like that, uh, cameras that have uh, infrared light coming out of it that you can't hide from even men. How much less so can we hide from God? that the Christian takes comfort in these truths, and the non-Christian, the wicked, that they are those who should live in anxiety and angst, that God knows all things, and they will have to answer to him one day. In verses 19 through 22, we have uh, the accountability before God for the wicked. There in verse 19, O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of bloodshed, depart from me. <clears throat> Here, the psalmist then is pleading with God that he would judge the wicked. And this is not as if the psalmist David is saying that he doubts God will do it. He's just asking that it might be done. He's trusting that God will do it. And we have a description about the wicked. 
there in verse 19, <clears throat> we're told that they are men of blood. So these are men who shed blood, men who shed particularly innocent uh, blood. That they are those who speak against God with malicious intent. They speak against God defiantly, disrespectfully, and we're told that they take God's name in vain. And here, we need to be reminded about God's commandments, that God's name ought to be praised, that he, his name ought to be used correctly. Proverbs 18.10 tells us, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Meaning that, meaning that God's name is a refuge for us, that we can call out to him and that we can cry out to him and run to him and that we are safe and that this ought not to be used flippantly. So God's name ought only to be used for praise, for adoration, for petition and the like. God's name must never be used as an expletive, as a superlative or with meaningless usage meaning in vain. We ought not to use his name flippantly, that we ought to use his name with adoration and with respect. Also, we have in, um, in verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you? So God is hated by the wicked, that they despise him. And you think about atheists. Atheists are those who claim that there is no God. Well, what is that other than an open acknowledgement that they hate God? Uh, those who are agnostics, well, we don't know what not he really exists. Are they essentially in the same category? Oh, we don't know what not he exists. It's a denial of God's presence. It's a denial of God's being. These are those who hate God. Those who shake their fist at him defiantly. <clears throat> Here, a question often comes up. Verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Well, aren't we told in other parts of the scripture that we ought to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? <clears throat> and yet here in verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you? I hate them with a complete hatred. Here, we ought to understand this hatred is that we, part of hatred is is not wanting to be aligned or united with them. Love unites people. Hatred separates people. So this, this is not a despising of them, but rather <clears throat> setting them apart in a way. That when we think about the wicked, that we ought not to align ourselves with them. We should seek no alliances, make no covenants with them. That we ought not to be uh, uniting with them for political gain. Uh, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. That we ought not to be playing games with them in this way. That we ought to see them as separate. There's a difference between righteousness and wickedness. And we must always keep those things in line. <clears throat> Here, in verse 23 and 24, we have a description of the psalmist's willingness to be searched and known by God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Here, the description about someone who's willing to be examined by God, who's willing to be tried as, as uh, precious metals are put into an assay, uh, 
they're tested for how pure they are. And the test of what not someone is a genuine believer versus that of a hypocrite is that there's a willingness on the part of the genuine Christian to be examined by God, to be put under trial by God. Here, the trials of God are those who are uh, going through the painful circumstances of life. The hypocrite will cry foul and complain about every test for fear of being exposed of his true heart. He's fearful of knowing what exists in his true heart. Yet the Christian, you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, you acknowledge that there is sin and weakness in you, that there is a weakness uh, of character in you, and that there must also be a desire to grow and to to uh, to be set apart by God and to be cleaned up by God, to be purified by Him. And this only happens by the means of trial, that by trial, by testing us, God reveals how there are areas that are far from perfect, so that we should never be saying to God, I don't deserve this, or you got the wrong person. Remember that he knows you better than you know yourself. So if he's saying you must, you must be tried in this area in particular, that there must be a welcoming of it. God, I, I desire to be more like Christ. I desire my life to be cleansed. Well, then we must be willing to be tried. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered here, the psalmist, he preys upon the judgment of the wicked. Yet it doesn't seem like he's concerned that he will also be consumed by God. There's obviously sin in his life, in David's life, just as there's sin in your life and in mine. That on one hand, if we're crying out for the judgment of the wicked, how are we exempt from that same judgment? When we look in verse 24, <clears throat> and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That this is a reminder that the everlasting way is the way of Jesus Christ. It is the way, not just a way, it is the way, and it is the only way that leads to life. All other paths end in death. The only way that the psalmist can trust that the Almighty, all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful God won't condemn him and consume him because he is a consuming fire, is that he trusts and that you and I must trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And trusting him for that, we also trust that he is the one who purifies us from all of our sins. And that's why we welcome him into our lives to examine us, to remove from us any hurtful or any grievous way. Are you one who is trusting in Jesus Christ? You must realize that that must exist also with a willingness to allow Jesus into your life to examine every part of your life. As a Christian, there must not be a territoriality of God. I'm going to allow you into these parts of my life, but these parts, they're just mine and don't touch them. There must be a willingness that God would come in, that he would be able to inspect any part of our lives, every part of our lives, because he owns all of it. All of our lives are His. That all of our life belongs to Him. And that if you're not, I pray that you would trust in Jesus Christ. 
because He alone is the means of the forgiveness of sins. It's only by Him that we can be forgiven and stand before the Almighty God. And that if you're not trusting Him, trust in Him today. Turn to Him. Embrace the promises of the Gospel that He is one who died on the cross on behalf of sinners and that we must trust Him that He is our perfect righteousness and by faith accept this good news for indeed this good news is eternal life. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank You, Father, for Your Word. We pray that we would welcome You into our lives to search us and to know us. Father, we know that you are one who condemns the wicked, that you know their ways, and that you will, you will account for every one of their sins. But we also know that you account for every one of our sins. They've been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that any who hear this will embrace the good news of the gospel. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.